care for us each day. Uh, we open our hearts to you now as you uh, sow the word of truth. Uh, Lord, help us to have ears to hear, hearts that are open to you, that we would want to seek you uh, ever more faithfully, that we would live a righteous life before you. We thank you, Lord, for the grace for the times that we don't. We thank you for the mercy and love of the cross that welcomes us to you. So we come to you now, God, and we ask that you would uh, teach us and help us, encourage us, Lord. We want to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it has been about a year and a half since the last time I was here, and a lot has happened between now and then. So if I've not yet had the chance to meet you, like Jordan said, my name is Luke, and uh, I get to serve on the west side of Indianapolis as one of the ministers at Plainfield Christian Church. And Jordan is a very, very dear friend of mine, and he just might be the best pastor I know. Can I get an amen? I mean, I, I love this guy, and I learned so much from him. And so I was deeply honored when Jordan invited me to come and share God's word with you this morning. In fact, when Jordan found out that he was going to be having to take some time off to go help his dad there at the feed store and he's going to need somebody to fill the pulpit, immediately he called the best preacher that he knows, uh, but that guy turned him down and uh, he figured, well, if I can't have the best preacher, I might as well have the smartest preacher. So then Jordan called the smartest preacher that he knew. Well, and that guy turned him down too. He figured, well, if, I, if you can't have the best preacher or the smartest preacher, might as well get the best looking preacher. So he called the best looking preacher that he knows and that guy turned him down too. And then uh, Jordan called me, and uh, what was I going to say? I'd already told him no three times. <laughs> Been waiting all week for that. <laughs> in fact, before we uh, came into the church building this morning, I had to sneak over to Jordan's house and borrow a belt. My belt had broken. Please don't make any uh, jokes about that. And so uh, Wendy said I could come over and borrow one of Jordan's belts. So I went up, and as I was digging around in Jordan's closet, I was amazed. I found there on the, on the, on the floor of Jordan's closet was this giant box of cash, cash. And, and, and on top were three eggs. I thought, what in the world is that? I mean, I know you all are a generous church, like Jordan just said, but that was a little bit astounding. So I asked Wendy what was going on, and she said, well, you know, Jordan's been here a long time. He's preached a lot of sermons, and you know, every, every time he preached a bad one, you know, really came up here and laid an egg. I, I just put an egg in the box. I thought, Wow. All these years, and Jordan's only preached three bad sermons. And when he said, well, no, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them and put the money in the box. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm done. I just came here for that. <laughs> Oh, man, uh, I, I, I listen to Jordan's sermons on the podcast, and I know, and it's an honor to be with this church this morning, because I know that this is a church that is nourished on the diet of the word. He feeds you guys meat, not milk. Uh, he's not laying any eggs up here, and I know Bryce preached a wonderful message for you last week, so I very well may lay, lay an egg up here for you today, but I can promise you that God's word most certainly will not. And as I was thinking about what to preach with you, what to share with you here this morning, I felt a little bit stuck, to be honest, because uh, I, I don't know you very well. I, I don't know your lives. I don't know your hopes and your hurts. I don't know your relationships and your fears. I don't know what life has been like in Etna Green over the last several months. Uh, but if I had to guess where you are today, I would guess that some of you are just tired. And I'm guessing that because I'm just tired. And I would also guess that some of you are probably facing uncertainty. 
I, I guess also, though, that there's some of you who are probably feeling pretty good. I mean, things are starting to loosen up a little bit. Weather's getting warmer. You're starting to feel pretty good. But, but deep down inside, maybe you still wonder how God feels about you. And, and I know that for some of you, if the last 12 months has taught us anything, it's that the foundations that society tells us to build our lives upon can be yanked out from under us at a moment's notice, can't they? And so as I thought about what to share with you all this morning... I decided that maybe, maybe in a world of uncertainty and chaos, where many of us have been shaken over the last year or so, maybe the best thing I could do would just be to give you two promises today from God's word that are rock solid that you can build your life upon no matter what's going on. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be at the end of that chapter, and I hope you write these verses on your heart. In fact, I think it would be wonderful for you to memorize them. Two promises that we're going to look at, but first, let's come to the Lord in prayer together one more time. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you this morning as your people that you have called out and gathered together as your church. And we find great comfort in your unchanging nature. That as we just got done singing, you are the one who was and who is and who is to come. So, Lord, provided that what we speak and sing of you here in this room today is true, it always has been true. And it always will be true. And we take great hope in that. So our simple prayer as your people today, Lord, is that you would enable us to see you clearly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Two promises we're going to look at today from Romans chapter 8. We're going to work our way down to promise number 1, starting in verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, Paul writes this. He says, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, verse 28 there is probably familiar to you, and we'll get there, but we're actually going to start in verses 29 and 30 and work our way back to verse 28 to make sure that we properly understand this promise. Verses 29 and 30, I don't know what your life goals are, but here is God's life goal for you, to be conformed to the image of of his son. God wants to make you like Jesus. You have not just been adopted into God's family. God also wants to give you the family resemblance, Paul says. That is what he has predestined, Paul says, for those who choose to follow him. Now that word predestined can get a little bit hairy, so let's explain what Paul means here. Uh, there are many of our Christian brothers and sisters who hold to the doctrine of double predestination, which means that God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell ahead of time with no choice on the part of the individual. However, that is not the doctrine that Paul is referring to here. Yes, we do believe absolutely that God is sovereign, but God's sovereignty and our free will responsibility work together in the salvation process. It's like this. It's like God predestines the plan, but not the man. If I told you that you came to my house, that if anybody who came to my house uh, later this evening in Plainfield would get free donuts, 
Now, I'm not forcing you to come to my house. I'm not picking and choosing who is going to come to my house. But I am predestining what will happen to those who choose to come to my house. You'll get some donuts. So Paul is saying here that for those who choose to follow Jesus, the plan is that you would be predestined to be sanctified. There's another big church word. Sanctified means that you're going to be made to look more like Jesus as you choose to follow him. Paul also says you've been called. I listen to your sermons. I know that you hear the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed here every week. And I hope, I hope that you have responded to him in faith. And if you have, then Paul also says you've been justified. That's a courtroom word. That means that you are declared innocent in the sight of God. And Paul says if you have been justified, you will be glorified. That's one of my favorite doctrines. When Jesus comes back and we are resurrected, the sanctification process is going to be complete. I'm not going to have to worry about my sin struggles anymore because we are going to be like him. And so we see here, just in these few power-packed little verses, that there is a past, present, and future element to our salvation. Uh, There's a wonderful Bible teacher by the name of Jen Wilkin, and she says it like this, if I can quote her. She says, be assured of your justification. It was. One day, you were freed fully from the penalty of sin. That's the past element of your salvation. Now here she says, here's the present element. She says, be patient with your sanctification. It is. Each day, you are being freed increasingly from the power of sin. And here's the future element. She says, be eager for your glorification. It is to come. One day you will be freed finally from the presence of sin. Past, present, and future. Now, I love that, but notice that Paul speaks of the whole thing here, the whole nine yards, past, present, and future, in the past tense. In other words, he's saying you can count on this because from God's perspective, it's as good as done. Just as sure as you have been justified, you will be glorified. You can take this salvation to the bank. It is coming. So with all that in mind now, that's the context. Let's look back at what Paul says In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In the 1800s, the most well-known wildlife painter in Britain was a man by the name of Sir Edwin Landseer, and his works of art were beloved all around the world back then, and many of them still are today. One day, uh, Sir Edwin Landseer was at an inn, kind of seated at a corner table there, just eating a meal, and none of the restaurant's other patrons knew who he was. But just then, the waitress was delivering some stuff, and she collided with one of the patrons at the meal, and a pot of tea went flying everywhere and just splashed all over this whitewashed wall, leaving a huge, ugly brown splotch. And the innkeeper came out to survey the damage. He said, ah, it's no good. There's no way that's going to wash out. We're just going to have to repaint the whole wall. But just then, the the stranger at the corner table stood up and he said, well, perhaps not. Let me work with the stain. And if it meets your approval, you might not need to repaint it at all. And so the stranger opened a box and took out some pencils and some brushes and some pigment, and he went to work on the wall, sketching lines around the stain, filling it in here and there with dabs of color and shading, and soon a picture began to emerge. Those random splashes of tea were turned into the image of a majestic stag with a big rack of antlers. And when he'd finished, the man inscribed his name there at the bottom of the picture. He paid for his meal, and he left. When the innkeeper came out to examine the wall, he was stunned to see that the signature read E.H. Landseer. 
That wall was worth more now than it ever had been before. And that's what God does with our lives. He takes our mess and he makes it our message. He takes our test and he makes it our testimony. But before we talk about too much about what this, pro, uh, this promise is, first I want to tell you three things that this promise is not. Three things this promise is not. First, this promise is not bad things won't happen. Just keep in mind, as Paul's writing this letter, he's in jail. His knees ache from the thousands of miles that he has walked. His skin is scarred from the beatings that he has taken from preaching the good news. His wrists and ankles are chafed from their chains. Paul is not promising that if you follow Jesus, he's going to give you an easy life with health and a well-paying job that you like and a nice house and a padded retirement account and a drama-free family. Can I get an amen? Because God's definition of good is much, much greater than, than that. It's so much higher. Remember, God's good, his goal for your life is to make you like Jesus. This promise is not bad things won't happen. Secondly, this promise is not everything will be okay. Now, what I mean by that is that this is not just blind optimism. This is not just some kind of belief in fate or karma. Paul's not just saying, well, things tend to work out together for good. No, he's saying God works all things together for good. The universe is not run by a coin flip, it's run by a person, and that person is your father who loves you. This is an affirmation of God's sovereignty, that the king of heaven sees all of time, and he is pulling this thread throughout history, and at the end of it, he's gonna weave it together for his own good purposes. Third thing, this promise is not everything happens for a reason. And I wanna be real careful with that. Because the, the sovereignty of God does not mean that God causes everything. Things happen for a lot of reasons. The creation has fallen. All of us human beings are sinful. There's a living devil who's out to steal and kill and destroy. Some of you have had absolutely horrific things happen to you in your stories. We do not believe that everything happens for a reason. We don't believe that God causes everything. So please, I, I, I know when people say that phrase, they have good intentions, but please never say that again because that lie is destructive and it implicitly makes God complicit for the evil of the world. We do not believe that everything happens for a reason, but we do believe that anything can be redeemed. Anything can be redeemed. And that is promise number one that I want you to lean on. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem. God does not cause all things. That's not what Paul says. He does say, though, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem. When we first went into lockdown, my wife Rebecca and I started doing at-home date nights where we'd make a dessert together on Friday evenings. And by that, I mean she would make a dessert and I would enjoy watching her make a dessert and eating the dessert. I can't bake to save my life. My, my wife is a wonderful baker, though. And, and so if, if she'd be baking cookies, she'd take all these different ingredients, right? I don't, I don't know what you put in cookies. She'd take eggs and milk and sugar and brown sugar and salt and baking soda and, and she'd throw it all together in a bowl and mix it together and it would come out amazing, right? But each one of those ingredients, they aren't good on their own. Oh, but man, once she mixed them together with the right amount of time, the right amount of heat, the end product was amazing. You're not going to catch me enjoying those individual ingredients on their own. You're not going to find me eating a midnight snack of three teaspoons of salt in my house. And, and that's what God does with our lives. We have a lot of things that happen to us. But man, they're just not good on their own. Job loss, cancer, divorce, 
wayward child. I mean, you, you, you name it. But listen to me, there is no character or circumstance or tragic event that can enter your story that our gracious God cannot edit for his own good purposes. Because God takes all of these things that might be distasteful for us and he mixes them together and with the right amount of time and the right amount of heat, he makes something good. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem. That's promise number one. We're going to work our way down now here to promise number two towards the end of the chapter. And Paul asks a series of questions here for the remainder of the chapter, starting in verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now stop right there because your life will be determined by whether or not you believe that simple phrase. God is for you. Let's take it one word at a time. God is for you. Your parents may neglect you. Your co-workers may ridicule you. Your children may not always like you. Your boss may look down on you. Your siblings may pick on you. But within your grasp and on your team is the maker of heaven and earth. God is for you. God is for you. Not might be, not used to be, not could be, not should be, but is right now. There's no waiting line. As you hear me say this, in this very instance and always, God is for you. God is for you. When you're on the court, he's the one in the stands with paint on his chest. When you're running down the track, he's the one standing there at the finish line cheering you on. And when you don't have the strength to run anymore, he's the one who's going to pick you up and carry you to the end. God is for you. God is for you. If God has a heart tattoo on his shoulder, he's got your name inside it. If God has a pocket knife, it's your initials that he's carved next to his in the bark of his favorite tree. If God has a refrigerator, he's got a magnet with your picture there. If God drives an SUV, you're the honor student on his bumper sticker. God is for you. So who can be against you, Paul says? That seems like kind of a dumb question because there's many who are against us, right? But none who are greater than the one who is for you. And God has made it clear that he will go to the absolute greatest lengths to prove his love to you. And just how do I know that? Because Paul says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We know that God is for us because he gave us his son. Jordan loves you. Pretty sure he wouldn't give up Oliver for you. <laughs> what kind of love is this? There might be some days where I wouldn't there be Oliver, yeah. <laughs> if while we were yet sinners, God gave us his best, now that we are his children, won't he continue to take care of us? The logic that Paul's using is like this. He's saying, hey, if somebody gave you the keys to their Ferrari, wouldn't they let you ride their bicycle too? Somebody bought you a house. Couldn't they stock the fridge for you? God's already done the hardest part in giving you Jesus, taking care of you. Oh, that's the easy part. And yet sometimes, sometimes maybe you still wonder if God really is on your side. If God really does care. There's a wonderful author by the name of Brennan Manning. If you haven't read his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, you should. Uh, originally, though, Brennan Manning's name was not Brennan. It was Richard Manning. And so Manning tells the story of how he got the name Brennan. 
Now, when he was growing up, Richard's best friend was a guy named Ray. And, and Richard and Ray did everything together. They went to school together, took girls out on double dates together. They even bought a car together as teenagers. And eventually, when the Korean War broke out, Richard and Ray enlisted in the Marine Corps together. They went to boot camp together, fought on the front lines together. And one night, they were sitting in a foxhole together, just reminiscing about the good old days back in Brooklyn. Richard was doing most of the talking, and Ray just sat there in the foxhole listening, taking bites out of a chocolate bar. Just then, a live grenade landed in the foxhole. Without hesitation, Ray looked at Richard, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the grenade. It exploded instantly, and Ray was killed. But Richard was completely unharmed. Ray had died so that Richard could live. Later on in his life, Richard went on to become a priest. And in the process of becoming a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. And so he thought of his friend Ray, Ray Brennan. And so he chose the name Brennan Manning. Years later, Brennan, was, uh, Brennan Manning was visiting Ray's mother in Brooklyn. And, and they stayed up late one night having tea and talking when Brennan Manning asked her, he said, do you, do you think Ray loved me? And at that moment, Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch and she shook her finger in Brennan Manning's face. And she said, what more could he have done for you? And at that moment, Brennan Manning says he had an epiphany. He imagined, him, he imagined himself there standing at the foot of the cross, asking Mary, do you think God loves me? And Mary pointing to her son dangling from that tree saying, what more? Could he have done for you? Paul says it like this, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So what does this mean then? This means that if you came in here today burdened with guilt, not sure what to do with your failures because you're stuck and you blew it again, take heart. Jesus died for you, which means that God is for you. This means that if you are in here today and you are exhausted from trying to do enough good things to earn God's favor, then that is not the gospel. God has already done everything that needs doing through his son, Jesus Christ, and that means that he is for you. This means that if you are here today and you're wondering, what kind of God is this? If he could possibly love a person like you, here's your proof. Look at the cross. God is for you. This means that if you're lost and you're stuck and you realize that you have broken your life beyond your ability to repair it, all is not lost. God is for you. And this means that if you have never given your life to Jesus in repentance and faith and obedience and baptism, then you can do that today and you can receive life because God is for you. And this means that if you're facing uncertainty and anxiety and poor health and even death, you can take heart because the one who conquered death and holds the future is for you. The answer to the anxiety of your mind and the sin of your heart and the pain of your life is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in verse 33, who will bring any charge? against those whom God has chosen. Well, the charges may come. It's like the story of the, <laughs> the little boy who was walking through the woods one day with his slingshot, and he shot about like me, never hit his target all day, not even one time. 
And so after an afternoon of wandering around and mostly just missing stuff, on his way back to his grandma's backyard, he spied his grandma's cat. And so impulsively, he kind of lifted his slingshot and slung a rock over to that direction. And to his utter horror, this time the rock flew straight and true, nailed the cat, and the feline fell dead. Well, the little boy panics. He didn't know what to do, and so he hides the carcass in the wood pile. And when he looks up, though, he notices his little sister's seen the whole thing. So at lunch that day, Grandma asks Sister Sally to come help with the dishes, but she pipes up, and she said, Actually, Johnny told me he wants to help in the kitchen. He'll do it. She leans over and whispers to him, Remember the cat. What was he supposed to do? It seemed like he didn't have any other choice. And this went on for weeks, day after day, more and more dirty dishes, more haunting memories of that old dead cat. And Satan loves to accuse you. It won't be comfortable, but imagine right now every lie you've ever told, every person you've ever hurt, every secret you've ever kept. And imagine a crowd of people surrounding you, taunting you with all of those shortcomings. The self-help section on Amazon is going to tell you not to feel so bad about yourself. Stop feeling guilty. Tell yourself how great you are. But that doesn't work, does it? Because we know the truth. We're not great. And the taunts of a thousand failures remind us just how far short we've fallen of being great. We're not great. We're not even good. We're guilty. But then we hear the good news. Verses 33 and 34, Paul says, It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Finally, one day, little Johnny was so weary of doing the dishes and being reminded of his guilt that he just couldn't take it anymore. And he blurted out, Grandma, I killed your cat. <laughs> Grandma said, I know, Johnny. I was watching out the window. <laughs> Saw the whole thing but I love you. I already forgave you. I wondered how long you were going to let Sally make you your slave before she, you just told me. You see, he'd already been pardoned, but he thought he was guilty because he was listening to the words of his accuser. Paul says, you are not condemned. And why are we not condemned? Verse 34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, our story from a cosmic perspective is that we stood before the judge of the universe rightly condemned of rebelling against him and the judge rises and announces that the wages of sin is death and he lifts the gavel but then, just then, a man stands up beside us. A man with deep scars in his hands. And he says, your honor, in this case the death has already occurred. My death. You're covered. And the gavel comes down, and by your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared innocent, justified, Paul says. And now that Jesus died for us, Paul says that now actually he's in heaven right now in this very moment as your advocate before God the Father. In the very first verse of this chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because of that, now here at the end of the chapter, Paul says, What could any enemy ever do to tear us from him? Verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Church, can death hurt you? Can disease rob your vitality? Can fear drain your joy? Can setbacks diminish your purpose? Can anxiety reduce who you are? Paul says in verse 37, no. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so here we are, promise number two. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Chapter 8 began with no condemnation through Jesus and it ends with no separation through Jesus. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem and nothing can separate us from God's love. If you go to the British Museum uh, in London, you'll find there a map of North America that was drawn in the year 1525. Now, back in the year 1525, most of North America had not yet been explored. And even those unexplored areas were still included on this map. And many people of those days were kind of given to superstition. And so, as an expression of their fears, the cartographer would scribble over those various unexplored areas of the map. And he'd say things like, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, here be dragons, Well, that map later came into the possession of Sir John Franklin. He was a British explorer and a follower of Jesus. And when he saw those inscriptions over the unexplored areas of the map, he scratched them out and he wrote across the entire map, here be God. Listen, church, there is no sin so grievous, no debt so great, No abuse so heinous, no virus so contagious, no pandemic so deadly, no church or government so corrupt, no words so toxic, no regret so crippling, no guilt so overwhelming, no obstacle so insurmountable, no death so final, no doom so certain, no power so evil, no circumstance so dark that God's love cannot reach you in it and see you through it. Because Jesus died and rose again, nothing can happen that God cannot redeem and nothing can separate us from God's love. So wherever you are, whatever you're facing, take heart. Here be God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we find great hope today in your faithfulness. That Jesus, you were faithful and obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And it is your death on the cross that is the proof of your love. And it is your resurrection from the dead that is the proof of your power. And so we believe, Lord, with every fiber of our being, that this event that stands at the very center of our faith means there's no such thing as hopeless. There's nothing that can happen that you can't redeem. And there's nothing now that can separate us from your love. And so our simple request today, Lord, as your people, is that you would indeed fill us with faith. Fill us with hope. Fill us with love. In Christ we pray. Amen.